says the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up, the oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languisheth. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. Howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. O Lord, to thee will I cry. For the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of water are are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, this book, the book of Joel, what can we say about it? Joel is a man of mystery. I say that because as far as the minor prophets go, uh, in comparison to others, we know virtually nothing about him. What we do know is his name means Jehovah is God, and uh, some people suggest that he was the son of the prophet Samuel, of the judge Samuel, and that's based on 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 2, where we read, Now the name of his firstborn, of Samuel's firstborn, was Joel. However, this book is very clear that this Joel is not the son of Samuel. He's a long way removed in time uh, from Samuel. 
and he is the son of Pethuel. And a Pethuel uh, doesn't help us because that name doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible but here. But we know that the name means vision of God. And so it may be in that respect that Joel's father was himself a prophet or a priest maybe. uh, And maybe Joel had been raised as a young man to always look uh, to the Lord, to have a vision of God. Some people suggest that, and you might read this in some commentaries, that Joel uh, was a contemporary or a minister during the reign of King Uzziah. Uh, But unlike Hosea, who we looked at last week, who gave us a very clear listing of kings under whom he ministered, uh, Joel doesn't say anything of any one king in particular. So you certainly can't say with any degree of authority that he ministered under the reign of King, uh, uh, King Uzziah. Now, it is thought that Joel is one of the uh, earlier prophets, if not the earliest prophet, because some of his language is similar to that of Amos. And because he anticipates the the Assyrian invasion uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel, as well as their progress into the southern kingdom of Judah. So that places him before 721 BC, and most scholars believe that he ministered somewhere around 835 BC. Now, whereas Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel, Joel prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah. And we know that by virtue of the fact that on several occasions he mentions activities surrounding the temple of the Lord. If you look there in verse 9 of our reading, he says the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord, from the temple of the Lord. Verse 13, he says, Gird yourselves, lament ye priests. He's referring to the, uh, the priests. Uh, Sanctify ye fast, in verse 14. Call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord. So here's a man who is familiar with the house of the Lord, who understands something of the goings-on of the temple, which would lead us to believe that he was located in Jerusalem, that the temple was still standing, obviously, when he was there, and that he ministered from Jerusalem. Possibly, even he was himself a priest of the Lord. Now, what is Joel's story? Well, during his lifetime, he experiences a terrible plague of locusts. And this national emergency becomes a springboard for his prophecy. He uses it as an occasion uh, to teach something of the future. And he illustrates, first of all, the Assyrian invasion that is about to befall them. And from this near prophecy, he launches into a distant prophecy in which he speaks about the end of time and the coming day of the Lord. So this book readily divides itself and easily divides itself into three sections. First of all, he speaks about a recent event, and that's what we're going to see in chapters one, chapter one, verses one through twenty. Then he speaks about an imminent event. He talks about the Assyrian conquest, and he tells them that this invader is at hand in Joel chapter two, verses one to twenty-seven. And then he speaks of a distant event in chapter two, verse twenty-eight all the way through to the end of the prophecy at chapter 3 
and verse 21. Now, we're going to just look at this book in that order. For three weeks, we'll be in the book of Joel, and we'll consider chapter 1 tonight, Lord willing, chapter 2 next week, and then the week after that, the remainder of chapter 2, and on into chapter 3. So we're going to think, first of all, tonight about a recent event. And I want you to notice in verses 1 through 13, where we've just read, the devastation. Notice the devastation. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. That which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. That which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth for corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, dried up, and the fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests, Howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. You know, when I read this prophecy, particularly in the opening section there, verses 1 and 2, it kind of reminds me of one of those weather reporters, you know, those, those climate change reporters who report on a, on a stormy weather assignment. You know, they're standing out there in some wild gale and they're telling you, or maybe they're up to their, uh, up to their middle in snow and they're telling you, you know, this is the worst weather that you've seen in such a long time. And, and inevitably what they do is they go out onto the streets and they will ask people, well, what do they think of conditions as they are? And they will they'll often say this, have you ever seen anything like this in your lifetime? And people will say, you know what, I have lived here for 15 years or 50 years or whatever, and I've never seen weather like this. Now, here's the thing, we have a very short memory for things. Uh, but so when people say that, that's not actually a good gauge of whether or not it's ever been like that before. But nevertheless, that's what people will say. You know, I've lived in this area such a long time, and I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. And Joel says there in verses 2 and 3, Hear this, ye old men. Give ear all the inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days? He says, have you ever seen anything like this in your lifetime? Or even in the days of your fathers? Did your father even tell you about something like this? He says, tell ye your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. And he's referring to a great and devastating plague of locusts. Uh, 
a, a phenomenon that occurs naturally about every 20 years or so in hotter climates. But on this occasion, it seems to have been beyond the normal. It seems to have been far worse than anything they had previously experienced, and it was particularly bad. In verse 4, he speaks about that which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten, that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten, that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. And so he says there's simply no parallel to this disaster in living memory. Now, some of life's events uh, are like that, aren't they? And, uh, you know, in our next book, Amos, the prophet will refer to, uh, will date his book by saying that it was in the days two years before the earthquake. That's what he'll say. He'll say it was two years before the earthquake. And that's where he starts his book. Now, you and I read that go, what earthquake? You know, there's loads of earthquakes. But to the people he's writing to, they spoke of the earthquake. This was something beyond the norm, something that stuck in their uh, local uh, memory, and something that they would have referred to, a reference point that people would remember. So you think about what we might say, you know, now we say before COVID. Remember, we say that now, have you noticed that? COVID's a reference point, Or or, or after COVID, we can do this. You know, it's a reference point, and it will be a reference point for years to come. You know, our children will remember it, and they will tell their children of a time when they were locked up for many months, and, and they weren't allowed to go to the shops, and they weren't allowed to do this, and they weren't allowed to meet their friends, and they will tell their children, and their children will tell their grandchildren, and it will be something that will go on. But, you know, if you were to come to people and say, have you ever seen anything like COVID in your lifetime? We'd all say, no, we've never seen anything like that in our lifetime. But actually, things like that did happen before. There were other pandemics and epidemics in which a similar response was brought about. So for the people of Joel's day, this was the landmark event, a plague of locusts. And notice there in verse 4, he gives four different names to these locusts. Uh, some people suggest these are four different stages of the locust, you know, beginning from larvae uh, all the way up to the old and dying locust. Others think of them as four different kinds of locusts that invaded the land. But really, you know, you're pressing it, you're pushing it too far when you take either of those routes because all Scripture is doing here is giving you four different names for locusts. And it's doing that as a means of poetic license. You know, he's writing in in a poetic and prophetic style at this point. And so he's basically saying the same thing four times over. And he's emphasizing this was a terrible, terrible thing. But also the number four is associated in Scripture with judgment. Look in Jeremiah chapter 15 for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 15. And I want to look at verse 3 of this chapter, Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 3. And here's a statement of judgment. And notice what God says, And I will appoint over them four kinds, saith the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to tear, and the fowls of heaven, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. Notice four kinds associated with that judgment. Ezekiel chapter 14, if you will. Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 21. Again, we see uh, this number four is associated with judgment. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I sent my 
four sword judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword and the famine and the noisome beast and the pestilence to cut off from it among the beast. You see it even in the book of Revelation with the horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horsemen uh, come out to judge the world at God's, uh, at God's command. So here's Joel's description of the land and he speaks about this terrible devastation and he uses four words to describe the locusts that have taken hold upon the land and have left it absolutely desolate. And so there, you know, there's no question these are the notorious desert locusts. And they're well known in the Middle East. They often appear in the Middle East and they also appear in other parts of, uh, of the world, in Pakistan and India uh, and in East Africa. And uh, verses 6 and 7 you know, extend to us, or explain to us just how devastating this was. They're described as a nation, for a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion. And he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree, taking the bark off the tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Verse 10, the field is wasted, the land moreth, the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languisheth. Be ashamed, O ye husbandmen, howl, O ye fine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy withereth away from the sun's of men. So the extent of the destruction is such that all the vine has been destroyed, the bark has been stripped off all the trees, all the fruit is gone off the fruit trees, everything is left stripped bare, and all of it is exposed to death. The whole land now is just going to die. There's no crops, there's no food, there's no future for the people at this particular moment in time. Now, thankfully, you and I have never experienced this. You know, We've never had a plague of locusts, praise the Lord. We live in the 90% of the world's population who don't experience uh, such a a phenomenon. Uh, But for the other 10%, locusts are a huge problem. And uh, they've been coined as the teeth of the wind. And probably one of the best descriptions of them is the incarnation of hunger. You know, literally millions of, and billions of locusts may land on a, on a particular uh, landmass, in a particular area, and they will eat tons, thousands of tons of food in a day. Can you imagine it? You can't even imagine just thousands of tons of food disappearing in one day. And, you know, how do you, how do you fight an army like that? It's impossible. You know, I've, I've viewed various videos of people in uh, locust plagues trying to, you know, kill them off, spraying them, you know, trying to kill them with insecticide, out there beating them. You know, you mean, how do you, you, know, how do you kill millions of locusts? You know, in, in, uh, in the summer there, we had a little infestation of fruit flies in our kitchen. And that took a while to get rid of those. There's only, there probably only about 100 of them. And it, was, it took a while to get rid of them. And I had to go and look it up on the internet and say, well, how do you get rid of these wee things? Because they weren't responding to fly killer and there's no point in trying to swat them. They were too late and uh, they were bugging us. So we, we set up a trap for them. We killed them. But uh, here's the thing. What do you do if you've got billions of insects? You know, it's just, it's just beyond you. You know, when Hazel and I went to England, we encountered this insect that we didn't see in Northern Ireland uh, called the flying ant. And uh, in, in the midst of July, about the middle of July, they have literally a day called Flying Ant Day. 
And we knew nothing about this day. I mean, but what happens is all, that, all these ants hatch, they're, these flying ants, they hatch on this one particular day. And there's thousands of them everywhere. And uh, we came home one evening after church and opened up our house and went into the kitchen. And our kitchen was literally covered. I mean, honestly, you couldn't see, a, put your finger hardly between two insects. Totally covered. And, and I, I thought, what in the world is going on here? And, uh, you know, Hazel, of course, being a typical woman, says to me, kill them. But there was hundreds of them. And I'm like, you know, I'll be here all day trying to swat these. And they're quite aggressive. They fly at you. You know, they come down at your head and they land on your head. And, and uh, you know, I, I tried to fly kill her. That did nothing. You know, I did try swatting a few. That was only making them more agitated. And in the end, I hoovered them all up. <laughs> I hoovered them up and they died in the hoover within uh, about a day or two. But, uh, you know, one night I came home and I pulled onto my drive. I thought I was having difficulties with my vision because my tarmac was going like that. And I thought, I'm having double vision here. It was flying ant day. And the entire drive was covered in flying ants. And the, the drive was alive. This was all these insects uh, moving. And so they literally have a day called flying ant day. They'll tell you on the radio, tomorrow is flying ant day. They've got this time to actually when these things will hatch and when you can expect to see them. Well, you know, people in, in these hotter climates have locusts, which are much worse than flying ants. They're prolific breeders. Uh, you know, they breed in their thousands. You know, just one square meter would contain up to 5,000 eggs buried within it, just in one square meter. And then when the eggs hatch, uh, they have no wings, so they basically move along the ground, hopping along the ground, uh, but not flying. And they're called hoppers at that point. And they, they sense and they, they scent uh, freshly grown vegetation, so they head straight for the vegetation and they begin chomping from the very base of the vegetation. And then within a few days, they grow their wings and they take off. They become a swarm and they send out a signal and one swarm connects with another swarm and they join up with one another. And, you know, before you know it, you have this huge uh, cloud of locusts that is coming your direction and there's nothing you can do. And they move in a silk cyclical way. You know, what happens is that those at the back, when they land, the, you know, obviously the ones at the front are, are marching forward and they're eating the food. There. So there's not much for the locusts at the back. So they fly ahead of the ones in front. So they're always moving over one over each other in order to get to the food. And so there's this constant turnover of locusts as they go through the land, basically destroying everything in sight. Now, this is where we're hoping my video will work because I do have a video of a locust plague. For your viewing enjoyment, okay? And especially for the ladies who are going to Kenya, this is Kenya. All right, so we'll see how we get on here. Here we go. You ready, Alistair? This is the moment where everybody at home is praying, please let this work. They're so frightening, they're mentioned in the scriptures as divine punishment. Locusts have been harbingers of doom from time immemorial. Notorious they may be, but this is exceptional. It's 70 years since Kenya witnessed these sights and sounds. A proliferation that began in Saudi Arabia's empty quarter now stretches 3,500 miles from there across much of East Africa. These desert locusts are among the world's great survivors. 
Normally they live in the hottest, driest places on earth. But their hardiness stands them in good stead when the going gets good. And in perfect conditions like these they prosper and their numbers simply explode. Rain is the reason. A series of cyclones coming off the Indian Ocean have kept this region unseasonably lush. Crops and pastures used by livestock have been devoured by ravenous swarms. Each and every one of them can eat its own body weight each and every day. Mama Chirito is a farmer and a mother, and three weeks ago she watched locusts eat the flowers on her mango trees. No flowers, no no mangoes. No mangoes. She fears she has lost half of this year's harvest. She told me she depended on selling her mangoes to clothe her two children and to pay for their schooling. The same swarm consumed all the sweet potato plants that Gladys Lemary was cultivating here. She said they tried to scare the locusts away, but that for two days they kept on coming back. We watched other farmers attempting the same thing, but their ability to influence the movements of the swarms appeared limited at best. The Kenyan government has been trying to defeat the invasion with pesticides, but there's not enough spraying happening. Now here, in this country's breadbasket, they fear the next generation is just about to hatch with devastating consequences. We are getting worried. We are thinking that it might even get out of hand uh, and cause more harm on people's livelihoods and uh, food insecurity for, for the community. Locusts live for about 10 weeks and each new generation can be 20 times the size of the previous one. The alarm might just have been sounded too late here. John Irvine, News at 10 in Western Kenya. All right, have fun, you two. So, <laughs> so anyway, but it's, you know, who would want to live through that? It's pretty, it's pretty horrible, isn't it? And yet that was only half the crops being eaten there. In this instance, the land was being absolutely cleared. Uh, and such was the devastation that this great locust plague brought. There was lo- nothing left. And so if you notice in verse 5, uh, Joel speaks to the drunkards. He says, Awake ye drunkards and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Notice that Joel sees this as a judgment upon the drunkards in the land. He portrays them as coming out of their stupor and finding that they have no more wine. There's no more alcohol available to them. Why is there no more alcohol? Because the grapes have been eaten. The fine has been destroyed. There's no new wine coming their way. It has been cut off from their mouths. And that is seen as a judgment of God upon that sin in that land at that time. Now, here's the thing. Whilst God's land covenant with Israel largely served an expulsion or exile from the land as a consequence for sin, Deuteronomy 28 and 38 indicates that locusts could also serve as God's tool of judgment. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 38. says, Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field, 
and shall gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. Now that's part of the land covenant. That's part of the curse that the nation was put under. And so it's a quite simple equation. No vines equals no grapes. No grapes equals no drink. And no drink means howling drunkards. Those who are thirsting and lusting after alcohol. And notice in verse 6 of the chapter 1 that the swarm of locusts are described. You should underline this in your Bible as a nation. Now obviously they're not a nation. But they're depicting a nation. When we get into chapter 2, that analogy will be carried across. That this plague of locusts will be, uh, will be used as a, as a picture of the Assyrian hordes coming in to the land of Israel and being unassailable. The people wouldn't be able to prevent the invasion and conquest, just as you saw the farmers in that little video shot, uh, you know, trying to beat these locusts away. I mean, it's uh, hiding to nothing, isn't it? They were never going to uh, be as successful in that respect. The insect was always going to win. And that's what God is going to teach them in the next chapter. That Assyria is coming, they're coming as a judgment, and there's nothing you can do to prevent it. That you're just going to have to either repent, or you're going to have to accept that the judgment of God is coming your way. Notice in verse 7, God is concerned not only with that nation, the nation of Assyria, but with his nation. And he refers to the nation as uh, my vine. And my fig tree in verse 7. And those are the pronouns that he uses. My. He says this is my vine. My fig tree. Now there's much dispute today. As to who rightfully owns the land of Israel. Does it belong to the Arabs? Or does it belong to the Jews? Well the answer really is. It doesn't belong to either one. The land belongs to the Lord. Now he's given it to the Jews to live in. uh, But certainly the Jews are not the possessors and owners of that land. That's the holy land. And it belongs to the Lord. His name is written upon it and written upon the city of Jerusalem. And uh, that's the place from which he will rule and reign. Now this plague is so devastating that Joel likens its effect in verse 8 to a young woman who's just got married but has recently been widowed. He describes the young woman as being girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. And so the presence of the locusts in the land are a source of inconsolable sorrow. If you can imagine a young bride losing her husband, as sadly some have, within days of the marriage or weeks of the marriage, and what, what a devastating event that would be upon her. How, uh, you know, how sorrowful would her heart be? Well, that's the picture that God paints of this land. With the crops destroyed, the animals starving, even the offerings of the Lord now have to cease. There can't be a meat offering. Why? Because the animals are dying. Well, what's the problem? Couldn't they offer them before they die? Remember, they're not to offer anything unto the Lord that is sick or blemished. So the animals are of no use to offer for offering. The animals are starving in the fields. Uh, you know, and, and besides, you know, meat, if there is any, is certainly going to be needed for human consumption, if the people are to survive. And so as a consequence of that, even the worship of God at the temple shuts down. Look at verse 9. The meat offering, the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, Mourn, And perhaps nothing says more about the disruption caused by this plague than the nation's inability to worship God, to open that temple and to do what they ought to have done 
under the law in fulfilling the rituals and ceremonies and offerings of the law. And so the priests have every reason to mourn. Verse 13, gird yourselves and lament ye priests, howl ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth. That's that's the garment of mourning. Ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. So he speaks, first of all, of the devastation. But then as he moves along, he speaks of a proclamation. He gives a proclamation in verse 14. Notice what he says. Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pleasure." Are no pasture, yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. Now, with such a national disaster having come upon them, what are they as a nation to do? And the answer is very simple. They are to call for a national day of prayer. The priests are to call for a national day of prayer. Isn't it sad that when our nation was in the midst of the pandemic and churches approached the government and Uh, suggested that there should be a national day of prayer that our government wouldn't even countenance the possibility. It was ruled out from day one and never considered again. And so fearful were they of upsetting the, the godless in our land and the atheistic in our land that they'd rather not pray to God at all. But Joel commands the priests to call the nation to prayer in verses 14 and 15. Sanctify you a fast, call ye a solemn assembly. And notice in verse 15 that first mention of the day of the Lord. Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Now this is one of the great days of Scripture. We're not speaking about a 24-hour day here. We're talking about a time period. And so 25 times in Scripture do you read about the day of the Lord. Uh, First mentioned in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 12, and lastly mentioned in Revelation 1 and 10, where John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he's not saying, I was in the Spirit on a Sunday. You know, we use the term Lord's day with reference to a Sunday. John was not saying he was in the Spirit on a Sunday. He was saying, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. And he's going to lay that day out before you. As you read the book of Revelation, he's going to detail that day uh, from chapter 4 onward. And he's going to explain about the great tribulation and then on into the millennium leading up to the great white throne of judgment. That's the day of the Lord. And five times out of the 25 times that this phrase is mentioned in the Old Testament, it is mentioned by Joel. What is the day of the Lord? Well, like any Jewish day, it begins in darkness 
and moves toward light. It ends in light. It's a day, first of all, marked by tragedy, but ultimately it is a day of triumph. Now, prophetically, we find several such days in Scripture. And I want to take you through uh, the days of Scripture so as you understand uh, the difference. And uh, the first day I want you to think about is this present day, the present age that's now 2,000 plus some years along the way. And that is the day of men or the day of man. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. First Corinthians chapter four and verse three. It says, Paul says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. And so that phrase man's judgment may also be rendered as man's day. And uh, in other words, that day is a day of judgment. It's a day of decision of some kind. Uh, Darby's translation renders this verse this way. But for me, it is a very, it's a very smallest matter that I be examined of you or of man's day, nor do I even examine myself. Now, Paul is saying, what does it matter if I am judged of men? It makes no difference if men judge me, or I stand in a human court, or even if I pass judgment upon myself. It is God's court that matters. So he's, so we are living right now in the day of man, man's day. And today, man stands in judgment of God. Now, we hear it all the time. Men judging God. There is no God. You know, how could a God of love, you know, why would God allow? And people are asking these questions. And when they're asking these questions, they're calling God into the dock and they're putting God in the court and they're asking questions of God. They're, they're challenging God. Man today is judging God. But someday, man's day will give way to the Lord's day. And man will be silenced, and God will do the judging. But before that day is initiated, there comes the day of Christ, the next day on that calendar of days. And that happens right after the rapture. You have the day of Christ, okay? And uh, you have the great tribulation period, and that seven years of tribulation is known as the day of Christ. Look in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 10. Philippians chapter 1. And verse 10. Paul exhorts the Philippians that you may approve things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense. Notice till when? Till the day of Christ. Till the day of Christ. So at that point, the moment of the rapture. Man is silenced and God is going to do the talking. God is now going to introduce judgment to the world. After the day of Christ, what happens? Well, the Lord Jesus returns. You have the second coming and you enter into the day of the Lord, which includes the millennium as well as the day of Christ. It overlaps into the day of Christ. So we have a day now that stretches over 1,000 years. 
That day is referred to many times in the Old Testament, sometimes called the Day of Wrath. That day, the Day of Vengeance, and so on. And it leads up to, uh, up, uh, it, it's right, it doesn't lead up to, it, uh, it leads to the eternal day, which is the last day that we're going to look at. Uh, and indeed, the great white throne of judgment just before that day. Sorry, let me go back through that again for you. If you missed that, click my button too quick there. You have to be really fast to watch that. Okay, so the last day is the day of God, when, when God is all in all, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and 28. So back in Joel, Joel views the events of this day, the day of the Lord, as a day of judgment upon the land. And he talks about how the meat is cut off from before their eyes. They're watching these locusts destroying the vegetation. Uh, how that the barns are broken down. There's nothing to put in the barns. Everything's you know wasted. The corn is withered. He talks about how that the uh, that the seed is rotten under their clods. You know even from the very base of the plants. Uh, the the uh, locusts have been gnawing at the root when they're hoppers. They're gnawing at the root of the plant, at the very bottom of the plant. So the, the very base of the plant is rotting. Uh, and they're in a terrible, terrible place. In other words, the land is in utter desolation uh, as a judgment of God. But dark as this time was for this nation, get this, it's going to become even darker. And this is the, this is the thrust of the book of Joel. He tells them that ultimately the land is going to face the day of the Lord, the very worst of days for the nation of Israel in the great tribulation period. So looking down the timeline of prophecy, Joel says that this is like, these events here in chapter 1 are like the day of the Lord. There's a parallel here with coming judgments. Look in Revelation chapter 9 for a moment. Revelation chapter 9. There's a very interesting little tract of scripture in Revelation chapter 9. You're, you know, in the early part of the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 9. And in verse 1, let's begin reading there. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, And the fifth angel sounded. So here's the trumpet judgments. And I saw a star fall from heaven onto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. And there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke, notice, locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. To them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. In those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the ships of the locusts were like the horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. They had hair as the hair of women, their teeth were as the teeth of lions. They had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots and many horses running to battle. And so on. And they had tails like unto scorpions. They were sting- there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. They had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon. 
but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon, destroyer. And so it's, it's interesting, this, this contrast or this comparison, if you like, between Joel's prophecy of an actual physical locust plague and John's prophecy of a demonic plague. Now, these are not actual locusts in Revelation chapter 9. These are demonic figures. You know that by virtue of verse 11. They had a king over them. The book of Proverbs says explicitly that locusts have no king. Uh, but this particular group of locusts do have a king. They have a leader. He's a demon. Uh, he's named Apollyon or Abaddon. And uh, you know, in that respect, uh, they are sent or they are permitted to rise out of the bottomless pit and torment men in the last days. Now, we thought about two things along the line here. The devastation of Joel's day and then the proclamation concerning the day of the Lord. Where does all of this lead? It leads to the lamentation. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 of Joel and chapter 1. The prophet cries, O Lord, to thee will I cry. For the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. It seems like the locust plague was followed up by a drought. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of water are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now here's Joel exercising what I believe is a priestly rule. And he calls the nation to prayer. And he himself prays for the nation. O Lord, to thee will I cry. And what else, you know, what else have, we, have we to do? You know, you know, who are we going to cry unto? The psalmist says this, Whom have I in heaven but thee? Uh, and there's none on earth that I desire beside thee. And even in verse 20 you see the beasts of the field are crying unto the Lord. Such is the, uh, such is the desolation and devastation that has been experienced but here's my question. You know, if our land is hit with some kind of judgment, if our land is under some kind of uh, curse of God, what are we to do? Are we going to trust and put our trust and confidence in politicians? Are we going to put our trust and confidence in the princes of this world, in the bankers and the economists? I think that would be the biggest mistake we could ever make. We should cry unto the Lord. You know, the land being devastated looked just as it would look in the day of the Lord. And it looked to him like the earth had been scorched and, and now this famine lay ahead for the people and their livestock. The Lord was their only hope. And what a lesson there is for us here. You see, it seems that our nation too, when you think about it, in recent times has bounced from one crisis to another crisis. You know, we had years of Islamic terrorism. You know, the London bombing, the Manchester bombing, and these terrible events that sit uh, you know, to the fore of our minds. Uh, you know, it was just one thing after another. Terrible stabbings, people out on the street with swords, you know, beheading soldiers and what have you. Now, that all seems to somehow die down. It's certainly, I'm not suggesting there's not, not an Islamic threat. There is, but either the police have been very successful in containing it or it has died down. Then we had Brexit and all of the upheaval with Brexit. You know, the, the run-up to that and all of the acrimony there was between the Remainers and the Leavers and then the vote itself and then all the squabbling with the European Union and people wanting to ignore the vote and other people wanting to uh, see that the vote was honoured and so on. And then all of that was followed by the pandemic 
those two years of, of uh, COVID, and of course COVID is still with us, and then uh, that's followed by the war in Ukraine, and the Euro- war in Ukraine brings us to an energy crisis and to a food crisis, and, and now we find all of our public services are on their knees, whether it's social care or health care or education or defence. You know, we're told that our army is hollowed out, and if we have, if we actually end up having to fight the Russians, that we don't have a sufficient army uh, to protect ourselves, and we're going from one crisis to another and it seems like we're in this constant critical state our nation indeed the entire western world with its pervading godlessness and accompanying promiscuity and perversion seems to be in a state of terminal decay what are we to do pay more taxes will that solve it elect more politicians no we're to pray we're to weep and we're to mourn over the state of our nation and may I add over the state of its churches Peter said this for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God when I say you know, you know, about the state of our churches, I'm not even excluding our church in that. We have to do our own soul searching. And Peter says, if this judgment first begin with us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? He says, we need to get serious about praying. The church must judge herself and pray for her own revival and for the revival of our nation. That's our only hope. We're to pray sanctify ye fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. If not you, then who? And if not now, then when? Brothers and sisters, what a powerful chapter that is and what a lesson it is to us as to how best to respond to a crisis. We'll pick up in chapter 2 next week with the blowing of the trumpet and we'll see uh, the imminent threat that was coming upon the land in Joel's day. Right, we'll leave it there for this evening and we'll go to the Lord in prayer.